We have a new verse for the month of August. Can you believe it's August already? We're almost through summer. It's really hard to believe that, but here we are. It is August 1st, and someone thanked me. Uh, one of our senior saints thanked me for the uh, preciseness of this verse for this month, and so we'll share in it together this morning. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God, 1 Corinthians 8, 3. And we'll be applying that to our hearts and minds and memory uh, throughout the month of August this month. We continue our study in the book of 1 Corinthians today, and we have waded into what is a difficult and very full chapter. And so we are in the second message from the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and today Paul is going to address wisdom for right relations. And the topics that Paul are going to explore in this part of his letter, especially today, are very full and very emotionally heavy. All of us in this room will resonate with one or perhaps more of the relational scenarios that we will study together today. One of my grandparents is a widow. Another was a widower before the Lord called him home. One of my closest friends, both in my personal life and in ministry, is single, yet he desires to marry. The pain and the heartache associated with divorce and remarriage situations have had their difficult and complex effects within our own extended family dynamics. Living as disciples of Jesus while relating rightly to one another is not easy in a world that's filled with so much brokenness and pain and sin. All of this, and yet we do have an ideal standard for whole and right relationships within the body of Christ. Paul's instruction in this portion of his letter gives us insight on singleness, on marriage, on divorce and remarriage. There's wisdom here for how we might relate rightly to one another within our communities of faith. From the beginning of our time together this morning, I want you to know this. I am certain that in our corporate study time today, I will not say all there is to say on these matters. As we've already stated in point number three that's on the screen, neither will Paul. This is not all that Paul had to say on these matters either. I will also concede that there will be some or maybe some here today that disagree with something that I say or something that I have chosen not to say. And for that, I would remind us of the beginning of Paul's letter to the people of God in Corinth, where we find that our greatest and most important priority of agreement for the church is found in the message of Christ and Him crucified. What remains for believers who disagree on matters such as these is to keep eternity in view, recognizing that in Christ we have far more in common than not. It is my desire this morning to navigate these topics together 
with you with a posture of grace and truth, in humility, with compassion and gentleness. And in order to do that, we need to ask Jesus for his help. So let's pray. Father, we approach your living and active word today with anticipation and eagerness for what you would have for us. We recognize that even before we wade into this text of Scripture that there are situations and circumstances that Paul will address in his letter to the people of God today that are still very full and heavy for us who are living here today. Yet there is much for us to learn, there is much for us to apply, and through all of it, Lord, you desire to see us grow, to grow in our knowledge of you and to grow in the way that we are able to love one another. That's what you would have for your community of saints. And so as we leave here today, my prayer, our prayer is that we could leave here with a clear heart, a full heart, and a clear mind, knowing how we might love those that you direct into our pathways this week and in the weeks to come. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 today, if you have your Bibles, you want to go ahead and turn there. We are looking at verses 8 to 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 to 16. Paul's words. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single, as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife? Whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Paul starts by saying that for the unmarried and for those who are widowed, that it is good for them to remain single. Paul himself was single, and as we shared last week, evidence from Paul's previous life as a member of the Sanhedrin and as a Pharisee might suggest that he would have at one time been married. And if Paul's suggestion that all would remain as he is seems a little bit odd, maybe even silly to us, perhaps it's because it appears to contradict God's direction in the garden. 
in the book of Genesis, direction that is on the screen, where God says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. So what does Paul have in mind here? And the answer to that question requires that we look at his wisdom here in context. We remember back last week, looking at verse 7, Paul's implication is that he was able at this point in his life to live single and free from sexual desires that may lead to sin. Yet, he also recognizes that that was his gift and current calling in his life. And if we take a quick peek, a quick, a quick peek ahead to next week, we'll see that Paul will three times repeat that we are to live as we have been called. Living single and free from burning with passion was and is good. Those with this gifting and calling can and should live and minister in the full confidence of their calling. And church, we need to be careful not to undermine or undervalue the giftedness and the calling of those who are single by suggesting that their singleness may make them or their ministry less valuable. And we do this often. We do it sometimes with young people, but sometimes with older as well, making suggestions like, why aren't you married yet? Or you haven't taken the time to get hitched yet? Or when are you going to find that special someone? Church, not all will marry. And the reality is a spouse has never completed anyone. Only Jesus is able to do that. Marriage is not the ideal for the one who has the gift and calling of singleness. Nor is marriage a requirement for ministry leadership or ministry effectiveness. We need to love our single brothers and sisters well. And we do that by receiving their ministry in the fullness of their giftedness and calling. This, while we recognize that not all who are currently called to serve and minister as someone who is single, will remain in that place. Look at the next verse, verse 9. If they cannot exercise self-control, both women and men who are single, they should what? Marry. For it is better to marry than burn with passion. Now, in the context of this chapter, Paul has placed a great bit of concern around this lurking threat of sexual immorality. Verse 2 of chapter 7, if you look back, what does that say? But because of temptation of sexual immorality, each should have his own spouse. Then again, in verse 5, come together again so that Satan may not what? Tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Suggesting now again in verse 9 the same thing. Three times in seven verses. Paul is recognizing here the power of the one flesh relationship of a marriage in keeping one another from the temptation 
of sexual sin. For those who are widowed, single, perhaps even in some circumstances divorced, it is better to be married or remarried than to burn with a passion that could lead to sexual sin. So Paul advances from wisdom for those who are single towards wisdom for the people of God who are married. The next few verses. Paul is going to deliver an ideal here. It is an ideal that he grounds in the authority of Jesus, and it is one that agrees and affirms Jesus' ideal for marriage. Even in doing this, even so, Paul's ideal does not represent everything that Jesus himself taught regarding marriage. It's very important that we remember that as we look at these next few verses. Verses 10 and 11. To the married, I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Last week, we talked about a difficult subject matter. Those of you that are here remember we talked about physical and sexual intimacy in the marriage relationship. And my daughter told me it was a very weird and awkward message when we got home. And I, I heard those sentiments echoed among some uh, in her age group and around her age group that were present in the congregation last week. Another parent, though, shared with me that she was glad that her children heard the message and the content taught from the Bible in a church rather than from another platform that might not share a commitment to the Christ-honoring ideals for physical intimacy. And so just as you know, just as I said last week, we don't dance around these subjects we take them head on. We are going to do that again this week, continuing in the theme of uncomfortable topics. We will briefly address the topic of divorce. And from the beginning, I want to share that I understand the painful reality that divorce represents for some who are present and listening today. Marital brokenness is a painful reality that happens in just a tad above 25% of Christian marriages. Now I know that some of you may have heard the statistic 50%. That's grossly overstated. The actual accurate statistic is more close to 26% of Christian marriages end in divorce. That's one quarter of all Christian unions. By the way, the number for non-Christian marriages is 38% which is about 13% or 12% higher than Christian marriages. The frequency of divorce illustrates for us the difficulty of relationships and relational wholeness on this side of eternity. It also reminds us of the effects and consequences of sin that remain ever present in our world today. Church, it is true, Satan is always lurking about, seeking to destroy that which the Lord has brought together. And I want our listening audience this morning who have experienced the pain and the heartache of divorce to hear these words today before we address this topic. 
Your divorce, or for children in here whose parents have divorced or listening, the divorce of your parents does not define you, nor does it change your standing as a child of God. Does divorce grieve the heart of God? Sure it does, but so does all relational sin and brokenness in our world today. It grieves the heart of the Father. What is complicated and complex about this matter is discerning exactly what the Bible teaches regarding divorce and remarriage and how we might apply these teachings in our life today. And Jesus himself, as he taught on these matters, he recognized the complexity that were related to them. He knew that there would be many different circumstances that would require prayerful and humble discernment. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is giving some extended instructions regarding divorce and remarriage. The text in your Bibles is in Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 to 12, and we'll be looking at some of the verses in that text here in a moment. But what adds insight before we even dive into this text is to realize that at the time, the Roman culture was leading the way in this not-so-ancient concept we know today as no-fault divorce. Divorce was such a common practice at this point in the ancient Near East that a man and a woman could seek divorce for any number of what we might today consider rather trivial matters. In some places in Rome, it became so easy to divorce that no level of government involvement was even needed. This attitude towards divorce didn't just disrupt Gentile marriages, but it also began to influence marriages within Judaism itself. And Jesus' teaching pushes back strongly on this concept or practice and this cavalier attitude of the day towards divorce. His teachings on marriage and divorce seem so restrictive, even to the disciples, so much so that they actually concluded in verse 10 of Matthew 19 that perhaps because of his teaching, a person should just avoid getting married altogether. And here is where Jesus recognizes and infirms the complexity of these matters. He says it in verse 11 and verse 12 of chapter 19. It's on the screen. Jesus said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it was given. Let the one who is able to receive it, receive it. And as we approach this topic today, I'm going to admit that I'm going to be guilty of some oversimplification and generalization, but please know it's intentional for time's sake so that we can broadly address this topic. If you have further or deeper questions related to this topic, I want to give you my email address real quick. It's jdavis at Calvary Monument. Oh, sorry, Jim. Just kidding. (laughs) I won't do that to Jim. (laughs) Please feel free 
If you'd like to reach out and discuss further, I would love to address any questions that you may have uh, following our time together this morning. I would also like to remind us that this is not a matter of first priority as it relates to doctrinal alignment. A person's position on divorce and remarriage is not a primary matter. We should not be separating or breaking fellowship with believers who hold differing views and perspectives on these matters. As a testimony to this, I just want to share a personal experience, something that I witnessed in college, seminary, and post-grad school. I had many different professors, both men and women, who taught on this very subject. Few of them, very few, were fully aligned. Every one of them grounded their interpretations in Scripture and biblical wisdom. Many of them remained great friends and confidants, even though they disagreed. And that is important for us to remember this morning. So, moving forward, generally speaking, I would break down the major views within the church in four categories. Category one or camp one, no biblical grounds to support divorce. Camp two, divorce on the grounds of sexual immorality is acceptable. Camp three, divorce on the grounds of sexual immorality, abuse, or abandonment is acceptable. Camp four, divorce is acceptable as considered on a case-by-case basis. Now, just so you know how detailed each of these camps can get, we would often spend weeks in class breaking these down. There are a lot of nuances within each and every one of these. We are not going to do that today. We do not have the time. But I want to share with you, for your pastor, which one of these camps I most closely align with today, currently. And that's important. Those two words are important because as believers, friends, we are consistently to be in the Word, consistently to be studying, consistently to be seeking God's direction and guidance, and to be growing and learning in our faith. So for your pastor, this morning, I closely, more closely and most closely align with camp number three, and I want to explain why. First, in Matthew chapter 19, Mark chapter 10, and Luke chapter 16, Jesus is directly teaching that infidelity or sexual immorality are appropriate grounds. You can look at Matthew chapter 19, verse 9. He says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Second, the Apostle Paul, as we shall soon see today, will also allow a provision for divorce in situations related to abandonment. We're going to see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15. One pushback against this provision suggests that a person who abandons their spouse might truly be a believer, to which I would answer, apart from a situation involving, involving abuse, I might seriously question whether a person who abandons their spouse has ever truly been transformed by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would it be possible for one who is truly in Christ to abandon their spouse and live free from the conviction of the Holy Spirit? And finally, for situations regarding all forms of abuse, 
I look to passages such as Exodus chapter 21 and Deuteronomy chapter 21. You can look at on your own time for insights while also considering this, that many, if not all forms of sexual immorality could and perhaps should be considered as abuse. All of this being stated, nothing within this view takes away from the understanding that God's ideal standard for marriage is permanence. That's his ideal standard. From the beginning, God's intended design for marriage was one man, one woman, as long as they both shall live. We see Jesus communicate this in Matthew chapter 19, 19 verse 8. I'm sorry, it's not on the screen, but I'll read it from my notes. He said to them, because of the hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. Friends, sin often corrupts, disrupts, and distorts that which God ordains and designs for our good and his glory. Also, there is nothing within this view that would demand divorce in situations regarding abuse, abandonment, or sexual immorality. I have seen, personally, in ministry, and perhaps some of you who have worked with couples whose marriage is going through a difficult time, have seen the Holy Spirit work through confession, repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation to heal marriages that have experienced some very, very difficult traumas. And so, as we read verses 10 and 11, we read them understanding that Paul's instructions do not work against what might be considered as justifiable reasons for divorce that Jesus gave in other places and that Paul himself will later give in verse 15. Rather, what Paul is doing here is using the ideal to address rampant divorce rates that were present among the people of God in Corinth. The affirmation is this, friends. Divorce is not God's intended design for marriage, nor did it meet Jesus' ideal for permanence in the marriage relationship. And so with all that in mind, we have to approach verse 11. Verse 11. But if she or he does, she or he should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to their spouse. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Again, the ideal that Paul addresses here is for two believers who are married, then divorce. His guidance is that they are either to remain unmarried or to reconcile. So again, oversimplifying for time's sake, a matter that requires probably a much more thorough review, Paul's addressing two believers joined together in marriage. And I would ask, does abuse, does sexual immorality, does abandonment happen from time to time in marriages that are made up of, of two believers? Sure, it does. But when indiscretions arise in these marriages regarding abuse, regarding sexual immorality or abandonment, when they arise and when they are confronted in the church and the believer sees that they have broken relationship over these things, the things that should follow those behaviors are confession, repentance, restoration, 
reconciliation. So when possible, reconciliation is the ideal. However, reconciliation is not always possible, especially in situations that involve sexual immorality, abuse, or abandonment. In some cases, it may be more harmful to the spouse to counsel them to go back to the relationship. So in this case, singleness is the ideal. Yet going back to the beginning of this whole chapter, not all who are single will be gifted to live as single. Some will burn with passion and have a strong desire to remarry. So one way that I have heard remarriage summarized by pastors, teachers, and theologians who hold this particular position is that if the divorce was on the grounds of sexual immorality, abuse, or abandonment, then the remarriage of the guiltless spouse is legitimate as well, so long as they are remarrying one who is also single or divorced on these legitimate grounds. Again, friends, in this text, in this context, Paul is addressing marriages that involve two believers. And we'll stop there on that topic today. But what of a believer who is married to someone who has not yet believed? And church, this happens often. There are times when two people come together, both of them at the time when they are getting married, believing that they are truly in Christ Getting married only to find out a few years into the marriage that one of the two in the union has never truly committed their life to Jesus. It happens. The other time that this happens is when two people were married before Christ and one of the parties in the relationship throughout their marriage comes to know Jesus as their personal Savior, leaving the other Still not believing. What wisdom does Paul share for these situations? He provides it in chapter in verses 12 to 16 of chapter 7. And you have to remember, too, in the cultural context Paul was ministering in, for the people of God in Corinth, many of who were new to the faith, this concept of an unbalanced union was often realized. When the gospel penetrated and transformed the hearts and the minds of Gentile believers, what Jesus said about his message bringing a sword and dividing homes was realized. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said, do not think I've come to bring peace to earth. I've not come to bring peace, but what? Sword. At that time, marriages were divided. Families were divided. The incision of the gospel message separated believer from not yet believer, demanding the question, should a believer remain married to one who is not yet in the faith? Paul's advice in the text this morning is when possible, yes, remain married. As long as those who were married consented to live with one another, they were to remain married. And we must remember the influence of Judaism on many of the early Jewish and Gentile believers. 
The concept of being found or considered unclean or impure according to the purity rituals was a real problem. Could being married to one who was not a believer make the believing member of the marriage impure or unclean? The ministry of Jesus changed the way the believer related to and applied the ritual purity laws in their life. And there's an interaction from Jesus' life that gives us insight into this. It's in the book of Matthew, again, chapter 8. It says this, When Jesus came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. As we look at this passage, we have to consider that if Jesus cared at all about following the ritual purity laws as they had been interpreted and implied, there was no possible way he could have touched that leper and been considered clean. Yet, that is exactly what Jesus does. The perfectly pure, ultimately holy, and perpetually clean Savior of the world reaches down and touches the diseased skin of the leper, and the leper is healed while the Savior remains clean. Because of Jesus, holiness has the upper ground. The leper no longer defiles, but instead he is made clean by the one who is holy. Church, Jesus is coming, and I know we say this, but we can't overstate it. It changed everything. Not only did he flip the literal tables in the temple, he flipped the proverbial tables as well. It would now be the clean, the pure, the holy, that could reach out and make clean that which was considered defiled. By God's strength, according to his divine work, the holiness of the believing spouse makes clean or holy the unbelieving spouse, keeping the marriage pure. Now, understand, verse 16 assures us that this is not talking about salvation. That's not what we're talking about here. But rather, these verses are aimed at those who desired to be considered clean by the purity standards of Judaism while being able to still engage in the physical intimacy and union of the marriage relationship while remaining undefiled. The believing is not defiled. Rather, she makes pure that which would otherwise be considered as unclean. And this applies both to her spouse and her offspring. In church, as I looked at that the last few weeks and considered that, this thought came to mind. We must never underestimate the immense power, privilege, and authority that follows being declared holy by Jesus. But we must also never take for granted such a precious designation. We can't take it for granted. 
but we also can't overstate it. Look at verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. So even the children of such a union were not to be considered unclean or defiled, but rather the believing father or the believing mother makes the children holy. And even so, a provision remains for the believer whose unbelieving spouse divorces or separates from them. Look at verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister, believer, is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. When the unbelieving partner separates, divorces, or abandons the believing spouse, the believing spouse is not enslaved, but may remarry, considering that God has called them to live in peace. The overwhelming aim of Paul's instruction to the church here is that situations where a spouse finds themselves married to one who is not yet a believer, the marriage should remain whole. Peter's letter gives more insight regarding the flicker of hope that's always present within this unique marriage context. Look on the screen, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, Wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. In this case, Peter is specifically speaking to the wives who are in this situation. But taken together with Paul's teaching, we might also conclude through the conduct of a believing husband, the heart of a wife who has not yet believed might be won over to the Lord. And so Paul concludes by asking a rhetorical question. One that could be read with optimism when attached to verse 14, or pessimism if we take it together with verse 15. Look at verse 16. Or how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? If seen together with verse 14, we may encourage brothers and sisters who are married to one who does not yet know Christ. Hang in there. There's always hope. No one's ever too far away from the embrace of a Savior. Your way of living, your conduct, even your speech might be used of God to transform or heal your husband's heart. If taken together with verse 15, it may be a consolation for one whose unbelieving spouse has left or altogether abandoned the marriage. Either application may be appropriate for this verse. And so the big question, how might our lives look in light of these realities. And we shared last week and again this week that this is a difficult part of Paul's letter. In many ways, Paul here is lifting a curtain and shining a light into our hearts and homes. And the Lord assigns to each of us a different walk and a different task. And we will examine this reality in next week's text. But today, we are going to practice living as disciples of Jesus 
and functioning together as his church in an overwhelmingly unbelieving world by participating in a special time of prayer together as a congregation. I want to invite our team to come back up again this morning. We're going to sing to prepare our hearts before we pray. But I do believe this morning that it is important for our congregation to come together and to pray for all who find themselves in these different, different relational realities. There are some in our congregation today who are single and who have the gift of singleness and will remain single. Some who are widowed or widowers and they will remain single. And we need to pray for them. There are some in our fellowship today here in the building or watching online who are single yet have a desire, a burning passion to marry. We need to pray for them. There are some within our faith community today, many, who are believers and who are married. Friends, we need to pray for the marriages in our congregation. We need to pray for marriage. Marriage is under attack in this country. It will continue to be in church. We need to pray for the marriages of our congregation. And within our faith community, there are some who are married to someone who has not yet believed. And we need to pray for those situations as well. So we're going to prepare our hearts through singing the power of your love. I'm going to come up and give some instructions. And we're going to enter into a special time of congregational prayer this morning, praying for each of these circumstances and relational situations. For those who are joining with us today at home or online, I would invite you to please join us in this special time of prayer ministry. When we break out and start to pray, there'll be a timer for those who are with us online so they know when we'll be coming back together again to close this prayer time. But what I'm going to invite you to do this morning is to pray for one of these three specific categories. And I want to invite you to do it either by yourself uh, alone in your pew or as a couple or as a family, or there could be people around you who are close to you, good friends, family members, that you would want to pray together with in this particular area. And so I want you to pick this morning, as we go into this time of prayer, the category that is most closely on your heart and on your mind. For some in this room, it may be uh, the category of those who are singled, single or widowed. For others in this room, it could be the category of believers who are married. But still for others, perhaps you have a friend or perhaps you yourself are someone who is married to someone that does not yet believe. And that's the area that is more closely aligned to your heart or mind. So what I'm going to do is I want to give instruction now. I'm going to give you just a few seconds to either Decide whether you're going to pray with someone around you or pray by yourself in your pew. Select what category you're going to pray through and pray over today. And we're going to go into a time of prayer. And I will wrap that time up this morning from the front as we close. So go ahead and gather with some people around you and pray. Lord, we do come before you today acknowledging and leaning into the power of your love. Your love, Lord, is the only perfect love. 
that we can know. There's a lot around us, Lord, that would threaten relationships in our life. All of us have experienced relational brokenness on one level or another and know the difficulties and the pain associated uh, with having our hearts broken by another person. So this morning, Lord, we come before you offering prayer for those in each of these categories. We pray for those who are single or who are widowed, for those who desire to be married, for those who are experiencing the loneliness and heartache of losing a life partner, someone who's walked alongside of them their whole life and shared in so many precious memories and moments. We know that that pain can drive deep and be regular. And Lord, we know that Jesus is able to touch that pain and to make it whole. Lord, we thank you for those who have the gift of singleness among us, who serve sacrificially, humbly, and give of themselves, oftentimes uh, unfettered from the relational demands of a marriage relationship. They are great examples of sacrificial love, and we are thankful for their ministry. We pray for those in our congregation who are united in Christian marriage, believers that are together, that you have brought together, that you would strengthen and protect their marriages. We pray that you would grow love within each of these relationships, that husbands and wives would learn what it looks like to turn their eyes on you and lay down their lives for one another. And we pray for the marriages in our congregation, in our faith community that are currently disrupted or struggling. Some we know of, Lord, others are happening behind the scenes and we are unaware, but you are aware. We pray that you would bring healing and wholeness in those situations. Lord, for those who are a part of our faith community or maybe watching today who are married to someone who has not yet believed, we pray along with Peter and Paul that the conduct of the believing spouse would have a significant spiritual influence on the one who is not yet in Christ. We pray that there would be a special measure of your peace, of the patience that your spirit provides, of endurance and of love within this marriage relationship. And we pray that you may use the believing spouse, to draw the unbelieving spouse unto yourself for salvation. Lord, we thank you for the time we've had together this morning in your word. And we pray that you would help us know how to apply these truths in our lives as we go today. We give you all the glory for who you are, for how you work, and we thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I want to thank you for praying, taking time at the end of the service to pray with us today. This is going to conclude the end of our service here in the sanctuary this morning. And I want to remind you that we are going to, at 10.30, move into a family life hour. So we will all be back in the auditorium here, 10.30, to start family life hour. I hope many of you will stay. We'll see you back here very soon. It will be live streamed as well for those who are online. Have a great day, everyone. We'll see you next time.